Welcome, welcome, welcome. We take a very important turn, both in the creed and in the Bible today, um, a turn that'll take us through the end of the, our semester together. Our turn takes us into what is for Christians the center of the Bible, the center of biblical interpretation, the center of biblical meaning. The Old Testament looks forward to it, and all of the material after these presentations of Jesus we're going to be looking at this week look back to it, making Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, or sometimes referred to as, uh, by Christians as Jesus Christ, um, the absolute center of the Christian experience. Because we cannot just do this in one week, we're just going to spend f- uh, a few weeks uh, doing this. We'll do um, um, a look forward at some of these so-called Gospels today, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then we'll take even a step forward and look at some of the materials that look back upon and reflect upon the Gospels after that. And then after that, because it's still not enough, because it aligns nicely with a part of the creed that we can look at, we'll come back and look at a a very specific and what is for Christians a very important aspect of the Gospels, namely the stories of Jesus' resurrection and crucifixion and like why any of that needed to happen. Um, And then we'll kind of end with a grand summation of the Christian vision through some other materials. So that's sort of our plot. That's our plan going forward. Now, Let us say the creed. As it turns out, our section for the creed today is that entire thing I've written on the board. I wrote it on the board because it's so long. I don't have it memorized yet. I'm I'm working on it, okay, just like you. We're all doing this together. So I wrote it up there so we don't have to have it memorized. We can just kind of say it along with the rest of it. Um, On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I just have, on the third day, he rose again as our cue for the week, but it's actually this entire thing, and this is how we're going to get through the creed. So hang in there. This is probably our longest section of the creed to memorize. We probably may be rivaling only one other set of readings. This is probably our longest section of readings for the whole semester, so we got to buckle down and make one last push while the energy is still here. So let's say the creed up to where we are and then add this, which we can read right off the board, or if you have it memorized, go from there. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. Where does our story go from this point? Where could our story go? Like if we were trying to come up with a Hollywood kind of like movie style ending to this story, a conclusion, uh, this this story we've been tracking with all semester, what would that be? Remember, God created the world and entrusted to Abraham and Sarah a promise, a covenant. That covenant was for land and kids, yes, but it was something bigger than just here's some land and some kids that you don't have, which is true, they didn't have that and they wanted it. I mean, everybody was kind of implicated and we got a sense back in the book of Genesis even that somehow God was going to use this covenant to change the entire world, to bless all the inhabitants of the earth as Genesis 12 had said. So there was something like really big right there, just hanging out there that we never quite got to see the resolution um, to that and certainly not in Genesis and then not even later in the Old Testament either. They got trapped in Egypt. God let them out of Egypt with an outstretched arm, a strong hand, strong arm and an outstretched hand, brought them through the Red Sea, brought them into the land. They had to do some killing to get in there, but they did it. The Israelites also then failed multiple times to make the covenant really happen on their end by worshiping the Lord alone. They were given a set of laws at Mount Sinai, 
a, a, a kind of set of conditions under which they would be fit to live in that land. It kind of worked, but it kind of didn't. They asked for a king. God was then mad about them asking for a king, even though he had given them provisions. I mean, the Bible's very kind of ambivalent about kingship. Uh, on the one hand, the Bible provides structures for what it would be like to have a king. On the other hand, the Bible also critiques kingship as maybe not quite the right model or what God had always so, sort of wanted. So it's a little, it's, it's, there's tension there. It's a little confusing on that front. But they do get a king, and then that king is the wrong king, but then they get another king, and then that king is the right king, namely a king named David. And to, to David, God makes a promise, a stunning promise in 2 Samuel 7, that David essentially, or in his form, in his descendants, will be king forever. And that that's a promise that God will not break. He maybe will punish some people if they break the rules a little bit, but ultimately David's going to be king forever, period. Which is stunning because then we find out that even David's son who becomes king after him, Solomon, already starts not worshiping the Lord alone, as in the, you know, some of the very first commandments we get in that set of commandments back in the book of Exodus. And then the following kings all have all kinds of problems. The northern kingdom splits away. They have a rebellion. They get destroyed by the Assyrians. They're gone. What happened to the covenant for them? Judah in the south remains. The temple remains. But, you know, they have all kinds of problems, religious problems, political problems. This whole thing is just doomed. They get destroyed by the Babylonians, and the Babylonians burn down the temple that housed God's name. I mean, this is very bad. In ancient Near Eastern world theology, every nation has a deity. That deity is kind of like the mascot of that nation. So if you're the Babylonians, your mascot is Marduk. He's like your deity. That's like your thing. And if you live in Edom, your deity is Kos. And if you're the Moabites, it's Chemosh. And there's this whole set of deities, and each deity is associated with a country. That's how it works. With Israel is associated the deity, the Lord, or Yahweh. Okay? That's the specific God. That's the God of, of Israel. So what happens when Israel loses in battle? Their deity and, and his house, his temple gets burned down. In a sense, you would say in this common system of theology, Yahweh loses. He dies. His house got burned down. He lost. I mean, where's Marduk today? Where's the church of Marduk? I don't deny that if you Googled Church of Marduk, you might not be able to find one somewhere in the world, but like, what, nobody's worshiping Marduk. Nobody's worshiping Baal today. Who's worshiping Kos, the forlorn deity of the Edomites? You know, like, what happened to these gods? Well, when those empires faded, when they were destroyed, when they were taken over, those deities got transmuted and reabsorbed in different ways, and they just kind of like faded out of existence. So the question that in, in our story that's very acute, it's very intense, is how does this God survive? I mean, yeah, I know as Christians, we can just say he survived because he was real and he was awesome and he just made it happen. But if that's, you know, what, what is this story then that scripture's telling us in this long, drawn-out way? How does this actually happen? We know that God does survive. He survives as Christians in our own lives, in our prayers and in the activities, in the miracles we see, in the people we love, and in all, all of that makes the Christian life animated and what it is. But like how in this story does this happen? The story of Jesus is the stunning, even surprising, I would say. Maybe as a Christian, it's not surprising because we're so familiar with the story that it's like, it just seems like, you know, you kind of insert a few points from like Sunday school and it's like, yeah, 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 I know that's it. Believe in Jesus, like the end, okay? The story though in scripture, I think is more surprising than that. And I think part of our task in a course like this, for me at least as a learner alongside of you, is to defamiliarize the familiar and to hear it in a new way. And hopefully that's happened for you in some ways. Like, oh, that's not what I thought it was going to be. Or, oh, I didn't realize it was so fill in the blank or whatever. I think this Jesus moment that we're now approaching is a surprising moment in some ways. Because if you were going to do a Hollywood ending, now picking up on my initial little hook here, 
I mean, what would you have happen? You'd have like some awesome king, like some superhero figure played by, you know, like The Rock or somebody. I don't know who this would be. You know, somebody awesome. And that person would just kind of like rise up, kick the empire out, establish the kingdom. The temple would be built. There'd be like lasers and lightning from heaven and stuff. And there'd be fire everywhere. And Israel would just dominate the whole world. And then, you know, some people would get married and you would then see a beautiful garden. In a sense, this vision of Jerusalem as a place where the nations will stream and come beautified in some way is a vision that's already offered in the Old Testament. You can go back and read, for example, or reread, because I think I asked you to read it, Isaiah chapter two, where there's this scene in which the author there imagines Zion, Zion, which is a kind of a code word for Jerusalem, but in a special way, as a place where all the nations will stream like a mountain. And if you go to Jerusalem today, like I don't know if you've ever been to Israel, I've been there um, and I was there last in 2007, which is a long time ago now. But Jerusalem's not actually on a mountain, right? It's like it's hilly and it's craggy, but it's not a mountain. But Isaiah imagines this, as do many other texts, as like this mountain of the Lord where the nations will stream to receive instruction. And it's kind of like that Hollywood ending where like we're at the end of time, Israel's the center of the universe, everything's happening. How do you get there? I mean, maybe that's the Hollywood version is it just kind of like becomes that. And maybe this, maybe Jesus is that character. He's like the rock or like, you know, Tom Hanks and everybody, all great characters just rolled into one character, the kindness, the strength, the wonder, all of it. And then leads this great revival in Jerusalem and Jerusalem becomes that place. No doubt, no doubt there were Israelites living during the time of Jesus and just before the time of Jesus who actually wanted exactly that outcome and saw that as the outcome. Israel's ideal ending to their story and not just their ending, but the beginning of an entirely new era in which Davidic kings would rule on and on and on, in which the temple would just be this glorious, pure place of worship and everything would be like it used to be, but better somehow. And there were a couple of attempts to actually make this happen this exact Hollywood ending to the story, I guess I'm calling it, um, in review of our, of our empires that had oppressed Israel or taken over the land. First, we had Egypt. Then we had Assyria. We know what the Assyrians did, the Babylonians. After the Babylonians, we had the Persians. The Persians weren't really destroyers like the Assyrians and Babylonians were. They actually helped Israel rebuild their temple. This is kind of what happens in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah then, is set in this Persian empire. But after the Persians, we had the Greeks. Alexander the Great, all that stuff, beginning around the year 333 or 332 BC. Um, around the year 165, let's just say for around number BC, there was a Greek ruler named Antiochus IV Epiphanes, and he was just a huge jerk, came into Jerusalem, desecrated the temple, killed a bunch of people, but there was a group of Jewish revolutionaries that rose up. Their, uh, their, their leader was named Judas Maccabeus, um, Maccabeus means the hammer, so his nickname was the hammer. Judas the hammer, okay, led a group, hammer time in Jerusalem, and they overthrew the Greeks, kicked them out, and reestablished the temple, and kind of, got, you know, kind of got something going, sort of maybe like what I was describing as that Hollywood version. But it was short-lived. A lot of Jews thought it was corrupt at a certain point. And then, starting around 60 BC, we have a new group on the scene, the Romans of the Roman Empire. This is the empire that is right there and present during the New Testament and during the Gospels or these four stories of Jesus. This is the empire that Jesus lives under. When does the Roman Empire end in Israel? I just put 300s. I'm not really sure of the date there, but begins around 60 or 70 BC, let's just say. Um, I might have to correct that date, but it, you know, something like that. Okay. 
So there were attempts during this Greek period already for Jews to kind of rise up and overthrow the empire. There were attempts during the Roman period also to do this very same thing. In fact, how about this one? Probably when our key figure, Jesus, was about eight or 10 years old, there was a rebellion by a group of Jews who thought that the Roman Empire was so corrupt they needed to just be overthrown and we need to reestablish right messianic rule right in the face of the Romans. Let's do this. And when Jesus was eight or 10 years old, a group probably in a small town just a few miles from where he lived, a town Jesus probably knew about, tried to do this and the Romans came in and just brutally crushed this revolt. Crucified numerous dozens of leaders of the revolt outside the city, burned the city, I mean, killed hundreds or maybe even thousands of people. And there were other revolts like this as well that the Romans also treated in this same way. I mean, just imagine that. Imagine being a child and seeing a small town near you. And this is like this place where Jesus grew up and this place where this kind of thing happened was like rural country in the northern part of of Israel. If we can draw our little map on the cheap here of Israel. Oh, that marker doesn't work. April fools on me. Okay, here we go. Sea of Galilee, Dead Sea down here, Jerusalem's right here. This part of the country up here, okay, was known as Galilee. Galilee. This is where Jesus was from. Nazareth is a place like right up here, not an exact point. I'm just kind of approximating. I mean, when you think about Nazareth, where Jesus is from, like what a place like that was like, you got to get in touch with small town life. Is anybody here from a small town? Like a really small town? I'm, I'm from like a really small town where I grew up. Like if you're from around here, you have to imagine places maybe like Wilhelmina or Sheridan. Or like if you go to the coast, like a lot of those really small towns like between here and the coast where, you know, people live in very modest accommodations. Um, it's kind of like God, guns, and country kind of stuff. Like that's, you know, it's a very pious place. People are very independent. We actually have archaeology of this region during Jesus' lifetime. And we know what this was like, this area, this rural place. We have good archaeology. It was very pious. There, were, there are a lot of archaeological remains that suggest that people were very observant Jews. They were really into their faith, really into religion that they practiced. And they were maybe not so into the idea of these kind of rich farmers in other parts of the country and also Romans oppressing them or taking their place. I mean, this is a key problem now too, one of these holdover problems from the Old Testament. The Romans, when the Romans come in, I mean, when you have an empire ruling like the Romans did, they had their own appointed governors. They had a series of governors down here, um, or really over the whole thing at first, a guy named Herod, Herod the Great. I don't know if he called himself Herod the Great or if that was someone else's nickname for him. Okay. Herod the Great was a Roman appointed ruler over this whole region. He's the character who, in, in, in at least one of the gospel traditions, tries to kill the baby Jesus. Okay, that's that Herod. But then there are more Herods that come after him and it gets kind of confusing. We don't have to memorize all the Herods, but Herod had three sons, also named Herod. And then there was another guy named Pontius Pilate, the very Pontius Pilate that we have in the creed, who was a kind of governor or maybe more specifically a prefect who um, ruled down in this area. Okay, so you have Pilate down here. Pilate spelled like that, by the way. Not like the pilot of an airplane, which is, that's like this kind of pilot, okay. So that's, <laughs> that's the pilot we're talking about, okay? A lot of, lot of fun spellings on the midterm of Pontius Pilate, but we let it all go. Um, but that's how you spell Pilate, okay? So Romans had direct governors ruling over this place, which creates a quandary if you were an observant, faithful Jew, right? Because back in the law and the Torah, I mean, maybe most explicitly in Leviticus 25, God had said from Sinai, from the mountain to Moses, to Israel, the land, 
that you're going into is mine. I own it, God says. I own this land, mine, mine, mine. And here are things you're gonna do with the land. But if you've got another empire coming in and saying, no, it's mine, 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 that creates friction, okay? That creates a problem. Whose land is it anyway? It's supposed to be God's, but it's kind of not. The Romans say it's theirs, but it's not theirs, but yet they control it. I mean, you know, what do you do with that, okay? Where could this story go, okay? What happens now when Jesus comes on the scene? What we have is not then a kind of Hollywood ending in which some great mega character comes in, chops off all the Romans' heads, establishes the temple as a beautiful place. Instead, we have a character, Jesus, who's from a place like that, who's from like Willamina, Oregon, you know, and lives out in the woods basically with a very pious family. And he kind of bursts on the scene. We don't know much about his early life at all, basically nothing. There's only one childhood story of Jesus told in the book of Luke. It's not really that illuminating. It's just like a little anecdote. It's cute, but it's not like, it doesn't tell us about what he was like when he was your age or a teenager. He just bursts on the scene, apparently in his 30s, and starts roaming the countryside preaching this message. He's a humble man. He's not clearly a king, although one of the gospels, Matthew, gives a genealogy that actually links him to King David by genealogy. He does healings of people who are sick. He teaches people like a teacher, like they've never heard, and, and apparently he becomes like the most famous person in Israel. Everyone flocks after him. And he is then brutally killed by the Jews or by the Romans. It's kind of like a mixture. The Jews don't really seem to like him, even though he is a Jew and from the group. Some of the authorities don't like him. But the Romans, I mean, you can imagine this history, right? Like of rebellions and people making claims. They don't want him around either, or at least they're pretty happy to have him crucified, which is their preferred way of humiliating death, which is kind of like impaling somebody up on a piece of wood and watching them bleed to death in front of everybody. It's pretty horrifying in a very public place, probably stripped naked. All these pious paintings of Jesus, like, you know, with a beautiful white body up there on a cross, just with like a little blood from the hand. It's so pious, you know, it makes us feel so nice. Um, you gotta picture something much, much uglier than that. In fact, if you want, leading up to Easter and leading up to Good Friday, one of the most, you know, this is the, this, the pinnacle of Christian life here, uh, you know, and I warn you, not everyone should do this, you just, you know, to think about whether you want to do this. If you want to get a good emotional kind of picture of the humiliation of Jesus' death and what it might have been like and what it might have felt like, and also the injustice of it within the New Testament story, why don't you go on Google and look up pictures of lynchings uh, in America during the 19th and 20th century? Tens and tens and tens of thousands of mostly African-American men were lynched in America, most often having committed no crime whatsoever on various kinds of charges. They, their bodies were exposed. People often took parts of their body and cut, cut pieces of their body as souvenirs. People brought picnic lunches to watch these kinds of events. And it was a gruesome, just a gruesome, gross, broken neck hanging from a tree, humiliating way to die. If you want to get a sense of what a crucifixion was like emotionally and just visually and you want to feel some of those feelings, go Google uh, a lynching photo. Go do that, okay? And that will give you some sense of how that actually probably came across to people, right? So he dies, like the hero of the story dies in that way. But, <laughs> and now here's where things start to get really bizarre. I mean, I don't know if anyone, if you were just reading the Bible like a novel, could you have ever predicted this kind of twist in the story? I don't think I could have. He then, as the creed tells us, rises from the dead. 
I mean, <laughs> he rises from the dead. He was killed, but he rises from the dead. To, I mean, his disciples seem to kind of not expect this, or maybe they do. It's really confusing. And the Gospels actually have very, only very small, um, you know, very short stories of what it's like after Jesus rises from the dead. They don't really tell us, like, how did he rise from the dead? Like, did he think he was going to rise from the dead? Did he, in some of the Gospels, he, he tells us that he's going to rise from the dead, but, like, how would you take a story like that? If one of your friends or teachers told you they were going to die soon, but that they would rise from the dead, would you be like, yeah, that's a normal thing. That's fine. You know, like that'll, of course, that'll happen. You know, like how would you take something like that? You know, if someone said that to you, I mean, even say bereft of your Christian experience, if you have it, if someone said that, you'd be like, uh. The question of whether Jews would have expected a Messiah figure to die certainly like this or to be resurrected from the dead is, is an open one that scholars debate about and we can continue to talk more about it as we go on. What then? I mean, okay, so this, so, this, so this teacher had done these teachings, many famous teachings, wonderful things. He died in this horrible way. He then rose from the dead. Uh, wh- like, what then? How is, that, how is that the solution? I mean, this is the question, I think, that's, that's the big question. And this is the question that the New Testament answers and that we're going to let unfold over the next four weeks. How is that scenario that I just described, I mean, in a very bare bones kind of way, how is that scenario the solution to the story that we've been tracking with? Like, how is that, how does that solve anything? Okay, so a guy was killed and I made ambiguous claims and then people said things about him and what was he actually? But then he rose from the dead and then he, he ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father and will come to judge the living and the dead? How does that happen? The, the Gospels, the four Gospels, are, are the biblical stories that kick us off on this journey. So let's get into those now. Now the Bible, just by way of review, by content, I mean, this is just like content-wise, is 75% of it is like the Old Testament, three-fourths. That's a lot. That's a huge portion. Thus, I don't feel guilty at all for having spent so much time on the Old Testament. It's 75% of, of, of the Bible, of Christian scripture, and it was at least part of, or most of the part of, the collection of scripture that someone in Jesus' time would have considered their Bible, in a sense, if you want to call it that. Um, the New Testament is about 25%. Now, here's a, here's, a, here's a breakdown of what's in the New Testament. About 40, 45% of the New Testament are these four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Okay, About half, a little less than half. And then about 25% are the writings by a guy named Paul. Paul is writing about Jesus. And he's writing about Jesus probably in the 50s and 60s A.D., just say the 50s AD, really. And many, most scholars think that the Gospels were probably written around the 70s, 80s, 90s AD, which actually means Paul's writings, his letters that he wrote to particular congregations, early Christian followers of Jesus, are actually some of the earliest writings we have in the New Testament. Um, and the Gospels maybe came later. It's hard to say, though. This whole debate about dating and authorship is very tough and would be like kind of like a part two of this course. If we had a much deeper kind of way to go into it, we could, but let's just leave it for now. And then there are these other things. I feel like I'm denigrating them by calling them others. It's just like a whole bunch of things. Letters written by people like James and Jude and Peter and books that we don't know who wrote them, like this book of Hebrews and the book of Revelation. Great books, wonderful books that we'll talk about, but they kind of comprise maybe 25%. One way to think about all this then in terms of Jesus being the center is to think of it this way. For Christians, the Old Testament looks forward this way to Jesus. We'll call this stick figure Jesus, okay? And then these other, and then the Gospels are these stories of Jesus. Four of them in a row. 
three of them have huge overlapping parts too, which is weird. Like why tell the same story these different ways? Well, our reading in this week, I think is gonna help us. And then our panel, I think can help uncover that a little bit. So look forward to the readings. And then these other writings in the New Testament after the gospels kind of look back to Jesus, making this the center of the experience. So you have a lead up to Jesus and a story. You have commentary on Jesus, but you have these four gospels. Let's listen to one of these gospels just right off the bat, a part I'm asking you to read this week, uh, from the Gospel of Mark, chapter one. Many scholars think that Mark was the earliest gospel that was written, and you can read in the textbook about why they think that. Um, There are complicated reasons, but there's a basic agreement among scholars that Mark was first, and that Mark maybe was used as a source by Matthew and Luke, and that those three gospels together, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the board is getting kind of crowded here with terms, are, are what's called, oh, here's that marker again, um, are what are, comprise the so-called synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, the term synoptic means one, one view, one optic. And so these books are very much like each other. In fact, almost all of Mark is within Matthew, but then more things in Matthew, and almost all of Mark is within Luke but then there are more things in Luke too, so that maybe Mark was used as some kind of core story of Jesus. It doesn't mean it's the best story. It doesn't mean it's the most true or the most accurate, simply because it's the earliest, if that's true, just that it was maybe used. So it gives you some sense of why there's repetition and why these three particular gospels are kind of like each other. And then John, the fourth gospel, is actually like over 90% just totally unique and doesn't interact with those three. Yet then again, it does interact with the synoptics in some smaller ways at about 10%. And the ways that John interacts with these other ones are complicated. So this is Mark. I'm going to be reading from Mark chapter 1. With this story then in mind, with these empires in mind, with this geography in mind, with this history in mind, hear this. Mark chapter 1 verse 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Baptism is kind of, was, was a known Jewish ritual at the time of putting people, immersing people in water of a river or of a sacred kind of bath. And Jews had a lot of water purification rituals like this. And apparently this is what this guy, John the Baptist, John the Baptizer was doing. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the spirit sent him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. 
the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. That's Mark chapter one, verses one through 15. Now there are some terms here, some concepts that come up in these verses that I wanna unpack for us a little bit by trying to, beginning to get at this question. Who is Jesus in these gospels? What are they trying to do? How about that first, one of the very first terms that comes up, the beginning of the good news. This phrase, good news, is really important for Christians. Um, in Greek, this is the word, euangelion, spelled like that. It's not really spelled like that in Greek, but that's how you pronounce it. Euangelion, should we speak Greek today now? We've gone from Hebrew to Greek, so we might as well speak Greek. I'll say it, then you say it. Euangelion. Euangelion. Good news, a proclamation of good news. In fact, this term, we know that this term was actually used by Roman emperors, by Caesar, the Roman emperor of this time and of earlier, and we know this from Roman inscriptions from the time period, by way of saying, oh, citizens of my empire, we have some good news for you to proclaim. And they use this term, euangelion, as a way to describe the good news they were bringing of the peace and the justice and the salvation that they were going to bring to their people through the power of their empire. So you have something actually kind of political here in a way. It's, it's unavoidably political. The idea that, that the gospel authors use this phrase to announce Jesus' coming as opposed to the empire. We're going to see a lot of this kind of language. In fact, how about another piece of this language? The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah. Oh, we'll come back to that. The Son of God. I mean, Son of God, is a, that's a fascinating phrase, right? I mean, this kind of language is where we start to get this idea, which we've already seen in the creed and discussed a little bit, that God is, is expressed somehow in three ways or in three parts or in three persons. It's hard to know what the right language is. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We even have kind of like a lot of this here in Mark chapter one. The Trinity, the Christian doctrine of the Trinity is nowhere expressed in the Bible clearly as such. Like no biblical author says, and by the way, you should all believe in a Trinity which would be like God the Father and God the Son, Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. That's a thing, and then explains it. There's no place where that happens. Rather, we have suggestive kinds of things. Already in Mark chapter one, for example, we have Jesus called the Son of God. So if Jesus is the Son of God, then there's God. And we have um, this proclamation that comes when Jesus is baptized, a voice saying, you are my Son. And the Spirit, some, some, something called the Spirit, sends Jesus out into the wilderness and descends upon him. So you have the elements already there in Mark chapter 1, but they're not kind of like put together in the way that Christians would put them together later. But by the way, back to the politics, this phrase, Son of God, also a prominent phrase that Roman rulers, that Caesar used for himself. You'll see an example in the textbook of a coin where Roman rulers called themselves the Son of God, the Divine Son, in the, on their coins, on their money. So Jews are living in a world in which you have a Roman ruler claiming to bring good news, claiming to be the son of God, claiming all kinds of things, okay? Um, we also have here our word back from the Old Testament. Do you remember it in Hebrew? I'll say it, then you say it. Mashiach. Mashiach. And this, and now we get to go into Greek. This becomes the Greek word. That's an S. Christos. Christos. The anointed one, that's the Greek translation of Messiah or Mashiach. So we've got a lot of loaded language. And now, most of all, when Jesus comes to proclaim his message, his very first kind of words, what does he say? The kingdom of God has come near. Repent, 
and believe the euangelion, okay? The kingdom of God. I mean, this, this chapter is just resonating, just buzzing with all kinds of language, such loaded language, isn't it? Which, yes, we can look at in terms of the Roman Empire. We can look at Caesars who use phrases like son of God and euangelion and even other phrases like soter or salvation, things like that to describe what they were going to do, bring justice and peace. And these are messages that we're used to associating with Jesus as Christians, right? Like Jesus is the prince of peace and the good news is the gospel of Jesus and all this kind of stuff and he's the son of God. But this was also, I need you to know, as an historical context, loaded political language in the Roman Empire as well against which Christians identified themselves and against which Christians identified Jesus. What is this kingdom though? I mean, this kingdom, it's not just the political Roman thing. That's one angle. You could kind of turn the hologram or look at it in that way and see it that way. But this kingdom message is one we've been tracking with all throughout the Old Testament, hasn't it been? This idea that David would come or David's descendants would be kings. The idea that 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 the, that the anointed one or the Messiah was in fact God's chosen leader in that Davidic style that would lead Israel in the right way. So the question then becomes, how is Jesus going to be a leader of Israel? How is Jesus going to lead Israel in the right way that will bring salvation, deliverance for people? What kind of deliverance is it going to be? Okay. So as we read, think of these questions like very you know, front and center on your mind. What is the deliverance exactly? In one sense, we see Jesus, and you're going to see this in the Gospels that you read for this week. He is quite, quite literally and straightforwardly a, a deliverer of people's bodies. He delivers people through healing. I mean, you've got to think, too, in the ancient world, even if you're an elite kind of rich person, but, you know, if you're living out in the country, you don't have access to doctors. Disease is probably rampant. People are getting sick all the time. I mean, estimates have varied about lifespans in the pre-modern world, but they're not long, okay? They're not long. Maybe by the time you're getting into your 30s, 40s, you're kind of like, I've lived a good long life. You're an elder in your community. If you're a woman in this kind of society, by the time you're 18, 19, 20, 21, you may have had a couple of pregnancies. Maybe half of them would have worked. A lot of women would have died in childbirth. I mean, any woman today, I mean, if maybe some of you were born this way or you know people that had to be born by, by C-section, by cesarean section. You know, they didn't know how to do that in the pre-modern world. They didn't have like, delivery rooms and all that kind of stuff. So like, I don't know, like everybody born by C-section would have died and maybe the moms too. So like, you just got a lot of misery in a pre-modern world and to have somebody like Jesus come out and start healing people, a lot of healing of blindness. And you can't just think of it just on the literal level, healing blindness, yes. I mean, to be blind and to have no solution for that would just be a horrid life, right? We have solutions and so we have doctors and we have a lot of hope in that kind of thing, but imagine Jesus just healing somebody. You can, another thing I challenge you to Google as well, just to, if you want to imagine as you read the kind of joy people could experience when Jesus heals them of being deaf or blind, go on Google. I've watched a lot of these videos myself. They're super fun. Go on Google and find those videos where like people get one of those implants and they hear for the first time as an adult. There's a really popular one of these. There's this woman, she has dark hair and these tattoos all down her arm. If you find that one, it's like just seeing her reaction at hearing for the first time as an adult. It's just stunning. So maybe if you want to get the emotions of like what it might have felt like to be a poor villager living in a place like this and then Jesus heals you. But don't think of it just like that. I mean, if you're talking about blindness and hearing, these are our two main senses with which we just interact with the world, not just physically, but also spiritually. And the book of Mark, for example, uses perception, seeing as a really important motif for thinking about 
not just physical, literal seeing, but also spiritual seeing. I turn now to Mark chapter four. Jesus talks about the kingdom. He talks about the kingdom like a secret and he delivers that secret through stories that he calls parables so that people can see but then not really see and so on and there's all this blindness stuff. Verse 24 of Mark, carefully consider what you hear. Themes of seeing, of hearing, of perceiving in the book of Mark are very important and cue you in as the reader to something bigger. Can you see Jesus as this? Can you hear Jesus as this? Can you hear the Evangelion? Can you see the kingdom? How is this kingdom going to function? We're gonna have to punt some of these issues to future class periods. Jesus' disciples in, in at least two places ask him, how should we pray? Praying is a basic thing that Jews did of Jesus' time. How should we pray? How do we do it? Jesus had a famous answer, which includes this notion of the kingdom. It's the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the short, simple prayer then that Jesus asks his followers to pray. Again, evoking this idea of a kingdom. But again, kind of drilling it deeper into our souls. What is this kingdom exactly? How is it going to function? Can a kingdom function without a king? If Jesus is that king, what kind of king is he? Is he a king that's going to have a palace and rule in that way? Clearly, there were, there were people during Jesus' time who were waiting for just such a thing, okay? There were religious professionals like Pharisees and Sadducees, teachers of various kinds that lived during Jesus' life, but there were also people like these zealots, also groups living out at Qumran, the Essenes, we'll read a little bit more about them, I think, in our readings for this week, who expected there to be some kind of violent encounter with Rome. Is Jesus going to be that kind of king? In a sense, we now already know the plot spoiler, even if you haven't read the Bible, which is that He's killed in this brutal way. His literal earthly kingdom of a Davidic kind could be seen as a failure. So in what way does Jesus have a kingdom then? How does it function and what do, what do the death and resurrection of Jesus really mean? We've kind of just set the table in a sense, kind of put the food on the plate and we're not really ready to eat it yet to fully get into this. So we're gonna put this off. But be thinking about these themes, kingdom, son of God, good news, seeing, perceiving, hearing as you read these four gospels this week.